0: Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Steve Carruthers in support of the Whale Foundation. The Whale Foundation provides a network of support services to promote the well being of the Grand Canyon River Guiding community. For more information, please visit whalefoundation.org. And thank you, Steve, for supporting Big Adventures.
1: These next guys, this is a little out of the box as far as Grand Canyon Adventures. But this is where we spread our wings a little bit with uh, some of the people I've met through other experiences in my life. And this one's particularly unique in that it's uh, really centered around the Great Salt Lake, uh, brine shrimping and harvesting brine shrimp eggs on the Great Salt Lake. And we've got Joe Nagel and we've got Tim Begay. They were partners uh, in a company called Prime Artemia. And that is a remarkable story that they're going to share with us, and that they were really on the ground floor of a whole industry. Uh, so settle in. Let's, let's get a load of uh, Joe Nagel and Tim Begay. What year was it when you guys got started with the Brian shrimp?
0: Well, I, I, uh, this is Tim, but, uh, I started, uh, a year before Joe. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. I remember. With Dave McKay. So I think it was 80, the winter of 87, 88, uh, that I went out and, uh, with Dave McKay and I kind of f- had an agreement to go out and, and try to, uh, kind of explore the industry and see if we could catch some egg and. And then the following winter, Joe and I went out with McKay's help. McKay provided uh, all the boats, the truck, motors, boom. And we went out and caught the egg. We did, you know, all the the labor. The the ground labor. That sounds right as far as timing goes. uh, And
2: Dave had the permits as well when we first started. Well, a permit. We just had a permit.
1: So for the listener, uh, brine shrimp, it's an abundant... What's its uh, scientific name? Of Franciscana. Yeah. What What the deal is is they pop these eggs, these little shrimp, and these guys gather them up, and then process them, and they go uh, go into a cyst or whatever uh, uh, that they can up and sell to prawn. You know the prawns you eat in the restaurant. Shrimp farmers. Shrimp farmers, yeah. and it's a primary feed, right, for a certain part of that. Growth cycle of the shrimp, but why don't you guys explain that a little more? But what they do is they they round these things up by the sack and sell them for a pretty premium rate. Or you you guys had a real good market there for a while, and probably it's probably still is. But the product just looks like sand, and it's all these millions and millions of little brine shrimp eggs that is the prize but why don't you guys explain that a little more you want to
2: take it or me <laughs> uh, it, it's okay I'll, I'll start and if you you can add this is joe and uh to clarify the shrimp in the lake are different species than the, that we're then we're feeding uh the predator shrimp which we eat vaname or monodon is what we're eating in the uh-huh. grocery store and so as the summer goes by and those shrimp are in the lake they lay a wintering cyst and that's what we call brine shrimp egg so to be clear we're after the egg and not the adult so that's where the pro- what the product is is brine shrimp eggs and you harvest it during the winter because it's dormant <clears throat> cyst and that cyst needs to be washed processed grated and canned so it, it's a live product in reality and you have to treat it like a live product and the end user is a shrimp hatchery, not to be confused with the shrimp farm. So it's used specifically in the shrimp hatchery in the first forty-five days, or maybe fifty or sixty days of a shrimp's life. It's a larva which molts every day, and they have to have Artemia to have a survival rate that keeps them in business. If they didn't have Artemia, which is what brine shrimp is when it's hatched, it's
0: it's an essential feed. Uh, they wouldn't be in business. The, the, Don't most hatcheries, Joe? Uh, it's like two to three weeks they use the product and then they're, they're done with it, right? Yeah, at least two to three weeks. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, a, it's a key feed at a key time in the growth of the, the normal cycle. The, in that yeah. growth cycle yeah. Yeah.
1: And so kind of explain to the phenomena or, the, or how this, this works as far as the egg. You've got these millions and millions of the adult brine shrimp and they're popping eggs, and then what's the physics, what's the phenomena as far as the actual on-surface, water-surface scenario? I mean, how does the egg congregate on its own, and w- what goes on there?
0: Yes, yeah, so, so the females in the late fall, when the temperature and the uh, gets colder, they'll release all the, the brine shrimp eggs. And then the, the shrimp population the brine shrimp population slowly dies off as it gets colder and colder and when those uh, when those cysts are laid they are quite abundant and if with certain wind currents and and uh, and the lake currents they'll they'll pool up and into what we call a slick of egg and that could be anything from uh, you know a half an acre to 50 acres uh, depending on the the slick, some some of the old back in the 80s, when we would come on a, a patch of egg, sometimes they were huge. It was egg as far as you could see, and you, did, you didn't even know where to start as far as trying to collect them. And so, uh, well, we had a name for that, Joe. Heaven. Fisherman's harbor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it would uh, to back it up just
2: a little bit. It, it's very salty. The water's uh, five times saltier than the ocean. Like thirteen
1: percent, eleven percent. Yeah, thirteen to fifteen yeah, percent in the yeah. south
2: arm, and twenty-six uh, percent in the north arm, which okay. is saturation. But anyway, we we're uh, most of our operation was in the south arm. We started in the north arm, but. Back to the south arm, uh, where we were harvesting is very buoyant, and so uh, the egg floats, but any kind of wind, will put it underwater, and it'll just go in the water column, so you need nice, calm conditions, and as Tim was alluding to back in the day, the streaks would get huge, and they would get three or four inches thick. Cake. On their own, on a natural slick, we would call them, and you could see, We would drive around in these slicks, and you could see it, it looked like hide when you went through it with a boat it would just ripple you know and you could tell oh, where those were, <laughs> the, those were the good days that that was uh, Easy when it was uncontested now it's you know the, the competitive fishery and boats you know go through it and rip it up it never has a chance to rest like it used to it used to form back, big back in
0: back early on we used to enjoy visiting with other people you know when they would come boating up in the old days we'd you know sit there and chat and then it just got more and more competitive and so after a while, we were like, when somebody approached us, we were, had our defenses <clears> up, you know, running boats out as blocking. Well, place. and having, having
1: the opportunity
0: to work out there with,
1: with uh, Mark's, my friend Mark Jensen's operation, uh, similar to your guy's operation, Prime Artemia, it's a, quite a scene out there. For the, for the listener, you've got a chase boat, so... The process goes kind of like this. You've got a, a guy in an airplane flying around and spotting for these slicks. Then he'll give the coordinates to the chase boat. The chase boat has the COR, or, or the Commercial Operating Requirement. Yep. He hauls ass to those the coordinates and sits on that egg until his boom boat gets there. And then... About the same time the the haul boat is getting there, and so you wrap the streak or the egg with this boom like you've they use it for oil for uh, trying to contain oil slicks and stuff like that. It's plastic boom that hangs what three you inches. have different depths of boom, but about uh, 30 inches, 30 inches. So, 30 inches of it, it's weighted, and so it's kind of a curtain that goes around the egg, and then in real calm, slow fashion, they'll constrict that boom to contain the stuff in a nice, tight holding, and then you bring in your pump and flop it in there and suck that stuff up and keep constricting the boom. While the pump is working, it's got a distributor above these 2,000-pound egg bags, in the Egg goes in those bags. The bags let the water out, and the egg stays in the bag, and they end up with these, oh, heck, a a haul boat could have 30,000, 40,000 pounds of egg when you're gagged up, right? Yep, yep. And so the whole scene's kind of wild because you've got the Air Force, you've got the speedboat, and then you've got the,
2: the Marines
1: come in after the fact. So there's a lot of activity to it.
2: Yeah, uh, to add to that, there's 70 permits, 32 companies, and a whole stack of planes. Oh, so you st- uh, the, yes, there it's, could it's be tw- 12, 12 planes yeah, up in there. Yeah, as Tim alluded to when we first started in 89 and 90, we were driving around at 10 miles an hour in old riverboats, and you know, you'd have and a cup of coffee with something. the guys you saw, and, and there was too much egg for everybody anyway, you couldn't get it all, and then it turned into, you know, 10 years later. The BLM would change rules, and they changed rules a few times, and and that was something that we were good at doing, was adjusting to the changes. You know, you used to be able to fish 24 hours a day, you know, and, and you didn't have any uh, restrictions as far as limits, uh, as distance from other companies, and then they had to regulate it because of the competitive fishery, so they started with a 300 yard rule that Mm -hmm. was one that they you know enforced or tried to enforce Uh, they didn't have much for the dwr department of wildlife resource was in charge of managing the the situation on the lake they didn't have many boats so we would fish 24 hours when we were allowed to and but they didn't want to be out there 24 hours they wanted to be able to patrol us in a more regulated, exactly. So anyway, um, <laughs> then they turned. The next rule change was they gave us duck hunting hours, so we could be out there, but we couldn't have our gear in the water until an hour was, before sunrise or an hour, an before hour after. Yep. And so you would follow the duck hunting schedule. There was a few minutes every morning. It would be a little earlier and earlier as the season went on. But that led to us using night vision. Which is a great
1: story. I mean, uh, other people were flying around looking for egg, but all of a sudden they were wondering why you guys were on all the egg when... The sun broke out, right? And, yeah. And you very, guys, very weren't very you the first ones to start using night vision?
2: Well, we would tell you that. And Mark, <laughs> Mark might tell you something different. Because <laughs> we found each other on patches in the dark. Uh, so I'm uh, sure Mark was using it at, at, at that, at that point. point too. But we had practiced early in the season and figured out that we could see these slicks of egg with night vision out of a plane. So to <clears throat> combat the rules or be competitive, We also had night vision in the boats too, but we would go out there and the plane would be out early and he would find the patches of egg and lead us to those coordinates in the dark. And when the sun came up and it was time to throw a boom in the water, we were sitting on the three of the biggest patches on the lake every morning for about a month or so Mm -hmm. until... They, they figured it out. They figured that we could see in the dark. And yeah, started I, I using was it. right. <laughs> it yeah, became afraid. obvious. Well, but we <laughs> actually had some of that egg that we caught in 95, we actually caught, I believe, 10% of the entire
0: harvest that year with three permits. And we were, and there we, were a, we were a small company. Yeah. You
1: know. No, but you guys, you guys tore it up. So yeah. we
2: had that egg four years later, some of it, when we sold. We still had some of that egg. Because we couldn't process all that egg in two years. So, uh, your processing, your capacity is somewhat limited when you process. You can catch it a lot faster in bigger quantities than you you can process. You kind
1: of explain the processing. I mean, that's a pretty, I mean, there's some phases in this industry that are pretty fascinating, whether you're flying an airplane with night vision or driving boats in the dark, following coordinates or what have you. But uh, the processing was a great kept secret. Uh, everybody had
0: their everybody thought secrets. everybody thought they did the best job. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, but
1: uh, can you explain that? So I'm uh, bringing in thirty thousand pounds of egg to the harbor. Let's start there, and then the the uh, crane picks it up off my boat in these big sacks. Well, Stay so ready? when we
0: when we at our at the height of our. Uh, business we would we had a, a pre-processing plant right on the lake so we would bring in the load off of your boat we would take it and then uh, put it into uh, fresh water I mean not fresh water but water out of the lake clean water uh, salt water and and we would dump the bag in it and then stir it around and then they would clean it with oh uh, these we'd get guys out there with big, Dip nets, but they were kind of coarse nets just to get rid of the feathers, sticks, and big crap. And then we would slowly work it through maybe a, a, pond, a, a tub or two, pumping it from one to the next. And then eventually we would pump it up onto Swaco machines, which were stainless steel vibrating sifting machines, like mining equipment. Sifting screens. Sifting. And that, would, and that would get rid of even more debris. And then once we had done this pre-processing, we would then put it back into a, a clean sack and actually take it back to Salt Lake City and mark dates and times and all the stuff on the bags. We'd try to keep all the big catches you know, together as a lot number. Yeah. You know? And then we would take it. And uh, for for our company, we we eventually just started freezing everything. We would go rent a giant warehouse and freeze the bags down to 30 below zero and it would just be rock solid and we thought that it kept the egg in better shape and then as we needed the egg to process we'd pull out a truckload we'd bring it to the warehouse and it'd let it thaw out it'd take a few days and so now we're into the secondary process the pre-process was out at the lake the next process would be to separate good egg from bad egg or shells. And that process is done in smaller, in like six gallon buckets. And you literally take and load in, oh geez, I don't know, maybe four pounds of egg or so, five, six pounds of egg into a six gallon bucket. And you'd hit it with fresh water and you'd fill that bucket up with fresh water and and really stir it up good. And during that time, we would also add a disinfectant that would take care of Anything on the shell of the of the brine shrimp egg, then you let that bucket sit, and so now you're repeating this because you got bucket bucket lots of buckets lined up, and the guys got really fast at doing it, and then all the shell and the crap would float up to the top. All the good egg, the denser egg, would sink in fresh water. Then they would skim off the top, and then take that uh, the good egg and pour it into a small like a polypro kind of sack. And then you throw a bunch of those sacks into a centrifuge, and then you spin the centrifuge, you know, to get a, rid of all the excess water, and then it eventually goes into the dryer. Did I lose you?
1: No, that's it right there. And but they're, they're, <laughs> but I remember the big dryers, and then it would go. You'd be able to can it after you dried it, or did, was there a waiting period? Waiting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, this is joe and uh, anyway to add to what tim was saying there there's there's a couple things yeah it would continue into the dryer and you're tracking all these lot numbers and catch dates at the same time and the dryer would hold oh about i think four or five hundred pounds wet and you would get half that weight when it was dried and then from there we had a lab on site so we tested every barrel every i think there were 150 pound barrels that came out of the dryer we test every barrel for quality so we would hatch that egg in our lab several and, times sometimes you yeah, know yeah, many and, tests and, and track it so if we were trying to you know, fill a big container load we'd have to have several lots that were similar so you'd have to juggle all that and then make a big blend again you'd use a swacco machine a mining machine to make that blend you dump it all together and it would would blend it so that that's kind of the end
0: process and Testing is, uh, we did it mostly all by one gram, one gram samples. Okay, there you and, go. Uh, and then a liter of uh, salt water, and that would be the equivalent of seawater we would hatch them in, and it would, it would have a bubbler in it to keep the, the solution moving, so every egg in there had an equal chance of hatching. As it hatched, we would use a sampler, like a pipette. You could either use a glass one or it's like a straw right and or there was automatic ones that we use and so then you'd pull a sample out there and then you'd actually put them down onto a little tray and with a counter a little clicker counter and you'd start counting and see what was hatching what was under it. a microscope yeah yeah so one gram uh
2: one liter and one mil pipette right so you would put the egg in there and get it to suspended with air, and you pull out a pipette and count how many cysts before you hatched it. That way you had a, a number to divide with. Then 24 hours later, when it had hatched, then you're pulling out the live nauplii and putting that on a under a microscope and counting one, one pipette full, and then you take the cysts, number and divide it into the the live animal number and you have your percentage mm-hmm. ratio you and that's how you graded it and so we would go to great lengths to track this because you could tell out on the water what looked good and what didn't look good if it was full of shell if it was older or if it, you know if it was looked like it was new egg you could you could tell by the color and what was in it and uh, i think back in the day we uh, went to a lot of trouble to figure out how to get it all homogeneous because people would just, most of the brine shrimpers would just put it out and dry let it dry in a big warehouse with no heat in it and then it would have to go break diapause. Uh, the, the egg itself would have to break diapause so it, it was meant to winter on the lake. The cyst was meant to winter on the lake and then it would get warm, you get a little fresh water out there, the algae would bloom and it would start to uh, hatch. So we tried to homogenize that process by freezing it so we had a consultant for a a seed guy came in and and we worked with him for a little while and he said you you know this looks like to me like seed that Mm -hmm. needs to be frozen so we we experimented with a semi-load and we put a semi-load in the freezer and with sample bags in it and then started trying sample it every week to see if we could break this diapause we were able to break diapause Right in the beginning of January, which was probably two months ahead of what anything else would be when it would break diapause. If you just let it out in a warehouse and let it get cold and dry out, uh, it would take a couple of months longer. So the end user starts in January. The people that are growing shrimp, they start their cycle in January oh, and February. I see, I see the so end we were answer, able yeah. to get our egg in, in line with their production and have it on the market early yeah uh, and and it was good too and it was homogeneous because we froze it and we it it just made everything a lot and better and it was and expensive but it was worth it strategically
1: a better place in the market right we thought yeah. so yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. so anyway that was and so you guys yeah. you guys were partners in this thing for up until what year did you sell
0: 99 2000 yeah right around yeah. that
1: you retired, and who'd you sell it to? What's the scene out there now, though? Let's talk about the lake today.
0: Well, so uh, we sold our company to Inve, and Inve was a, a, a Belgium company that was involved in brine shrimp, and they were out in Grantsville. And uh, so Inve, I don't believe is still in business. I think they're, they got bought out, and most everybody that got, so Inve bought up, Quite a few companies, and now everybody's pretty much in the co-op, brine shrimp co-op. So you, the people that own those permits still own them, but you join a co-op, and it's a harvesting, processing, and marketing co-op. They all share in all the expenses, and but there's some people that are outside the co-op.
1: Now, let's talk about the lake a little bit. Uh, For you guys that aren't really familiar with the Great Salt Lake, it's a huge, huge body of water. I mean, um, I've never seen a sunrise or a sunset anywhere else that could touch uh, some of the sunrises and sunsets on the Great Salt Lake. There'd be times where you couldn't even figure out the transition between the lake and the sky. You know, especially the sunsets. I would agree with you.
0: Some of the best ever. Um, yeah, yeah. But
1: also the, the interesting part of it is the navigation has a lot to do with uh, lake depth. And so there's uh, the guys that were out there for a really long time, like these boys out of Gransville and what's the other one, Tewella, and Some of those guys had just grown up all their lives around that lake and stuff. But to talk a little bit about that homegrown culture of some of those guys and some of those boats.
0: Yeah, well, so to back up just a little bit, so the lake is huge. It's uh, 75, 70 miles north-south if you take away the causeway and just go with the the lake itself. And uh, probably about 22 miles, 24 miles, um, depending on where you are. Uh, east west and it is shallow uh an average depth uh, when we were operating was probably 15 feet in the deep spots maybe 30 uh but it is quite shallow and i can attest to running aground several times
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah I, re- I remember running aground myself
2: with mark jensen yeah uh, A lot of the egg would collect in the shallow, so oftentimes you were around the shorelines that were shallow. Yeah, it was, and it was all you could do to get enough draft in your boat to get in and around the eggs. And right. Times, and some of those bays, like Carrington Bay, uh, and those upper bays, are just shallow for miles and miles. You know, it's it's in, well, it just I think the average depth of the lake is eleven feet, and the its deepest point is forty.
0: And it's really shallow now. When, when, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you yeah.
1: what
2: the elevation
1: of the lake was right
0: now. I'm so, not sure they Can you but,
1: still go in and out of Antelope? Bad no,
2: Harbor? No. Well, I think most of the docks are in the dirt on the
0: ground. No, nope. Antelope, oh, I just yeah. went by, uh, I went out there mountain biking, and uh, there's not one boat in there. And so all the brine shrimp boats that are operated on the Great Salt Lake now are all in a, a private marina on the south tip of Promontory. Yeah, up there on Promontory. Yeah. Now your encampment was over North tip of Stansbury. I Stansbury on,
2: um, on the Magcore dike. we were yeah. renting our our rent our little rented spot was from MAG Corps, Mag- yeah. Magnesium and Corporation. did you guys have a
1: slough kind of thing
2: out front, or was yours a pretty open face sort of camp? We, we built the harbor. The, the MAG Corps was, uh, allowed us to do that. We also got a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, submitted a permit, and then we had the Cannon brothers, who were the people that ripped down the trestle tracks, the 17-mile wood tracks that goes across the lake. And these guys had a barge and some big equipment, and they dug us a canal and made a spit for us. And we had spoils from the land that we uh, dropped in. So we we did have
1: a a, a
0: break wall, so to speak, to protect that. It was really nice. We did a really good job. (laughs) It was pretty, I mean, it it operated well. And and the other benefit to us being the, the first one, we were the last one in, you know, so we were the highest one out on the. And the egg used to come in and hit that causeway, the MAGCOR spit causeway, and it would sometimes we'd wake up and our harbor was full of egg. We'd have to pump it to get the boats out of the way. And I can't tell you how many bags we, we pulled out of the harbor. I mean, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, it was like well, it was a an natural catchment scenario.
2: What happened to Sanders at the time was trying to get everybody, all the independents, out of the marinas, the state marinas because we were operating at the South Marina and Antelope Marina. So they had pushed the state to kick us out because we were a commercial entity, and that was a recreational marina that was built with funds from the federal government for recreation. So somehow they squeezed us out of there. So when they did that, we went and rented land. Right next to, right next and, to built that, <laughs> and built that, and built that harbor. And the second morning that we were there, it filled with egg, and it was really rough out. and Nobody was really able to harvest on the lake, but we were pumping bags right out of our harbor. Had we not built that, that would have went. I think we, I think we pumped.
0: So, uh, <laughs> we, we paid. <laughs> so you guys, we
2: probably paid for that harbor the first we, day. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Probably it was we were, like thirty you know, or forty harvest, super
0: sacks we pulled out of there, and and you know on the market at that time we. We paid for the whole cost of the marina and (laughs) the dredging and everything (laughs) in one day.
1: (laughs) And then it was a long-term shoreline feature that probably repeated itself in Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which kind of is a good segue to go to the shoreline harvesting. Wasn't there a big I, you'd see Still those is. guys with those four. We little, were set up for it. Too. Four we wheelers. Four
2: wheelers, and, and when you would get blown off the lake, you could take your permit and a four wheeler and ride out into the desert and these salt flats, and where it was shallow, and actually shovel the egg. Because it, it would get blown up into the shallows in a storm, and then the water would back out after the wind would quit, and it would leave the egg in you know three, four, or five inches deep. And you could drive right up to it and shovel it, and could you still get the good
1: quality egg off the shoreline, or was it compromised usually? Yeah,
2: yeah, compromised usually a little bit. Yeah,
1: and it must have been kind of backbreaking work, huh? Uh huh. (laughs) (laughs) I never did any of that.
0: It was so tough on equipment, Brian. We had all these four wheelers and trucks, and it was just so briny. You know, you're putting those sacks on your. On your four wheelers, and it's just dripping this heavy brine down through your chain and your drive, <laughs> and 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 we throw it into, um, a be- into yeah. the bed of a truck, and it would—I mean—it just rusted everything out. Generators, anything, anything, as a matter of fact, boats, motors, yeah. trailers, whatever you brought out to the Great Salt Lake, it, it, it rusted the pins yeah. out of your s- yeah. sunglasses. Yeah,
1: it's just amazing the corrosiveness. Like all the wiring on these boats and the corrosiveness, Um, that's another thing I kind of wanted to bring into it is just the sheer salt content of the, like say you say eleven to thirteen percent in the southern end, and then it's kind of isolated. The southern end is isolated from the northern end because of
0: a big the Union Pacific Union
1: Pacific Railroad. What do you call that a
0: It's a... Causeway? It's a causeway. Causeway. Earthen, yeah.
1: And and there are breaches in the causeway where there's a little bit of water can transfer and equalize their elevation, the overall lakes elevation, but there's a complete uh, void of fresh water going into the north end where you do have what creeks come into the south side. It gets kind of replenished with some fresh water, Right. All the water basically
2: Comes goes in into the south. the south side, and any water uh, that gets to the north is transferred through those openings. There's a couple openings in the causeway, and that transfers. And in into those the times
1: north. when we were uh, shut down on the south leg, we were going up to the north leg, and so you'd bring this big, huge boat and very delicately drive it under one of these breaches under the railroad like, tracks. Yeah, the like, uh, culverts. And you. Had an immediate sense of a, you're on a different planet from the south lake. Then you'd get to the north lake, and it's 25 percent or 26 percent salinity. I mean, and that's it's a quarter solid.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean,
1: it's yeah. And yeah. Uh, what was cool about that? Like with the Queeds you'd have it up to what 40, 42 miles an hour on the south end of the lake, and then you'd get on that dense north water with an empty boat with a couple twin 250s on it, and you'd gain another seven miles an hour, trim it way up because it was grabby water, and just scream across the top of this (laughs) high-density water. It was really cool. Uh,
2: Yeah, and and to talk to the salt, uh, about the salt and the water, the, when you were talking about the, how beautiful the sunrises and sunsets were, the salt has a big part of that. That lake lays down really flat immediately because the water is so dense. So as soon as the wind stops, it is just like a reflecting pond. We there. called it mercury. That, mercury. It, yeah, yeah it, is. it reflects that type of dense water, reflects light. And makes those beautiful sunsets and sunrises. It's just oh, yeah, you know, it's it, part it. of the environment. And to further the salt thing, you know, that's the big business out there is salt. It's you know Great Salt Lake Mineral Morton Salt. Those are the big companies. I mean, we, we we're brine shrimpers and we're pecking around, pulling brine shrimp egg off. But it's a small industry compared to the mineral extraction exactly. of Great Salt Lake. Well, you got into it with. Uh
1: McKay,
0: yeah, so and it was
1: kind of mutually. You were both getting into it as a kind of no, experiment, no, or?
0: no. It was it was his idea uh, originally. So this is how it happened. I worked for Dave McKay in the Grand Canyon for many summers, and I had stopped working for him and was trying to figure out what I was going to do in life, and 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 so one of the things that Dave always offered us employees was. Uh, a north face discount you know and so i needed a 10 or something and i called him and he said he says i, I want to talk to you too why don't you, why don't you come into the office and he said he said i've been selling these snout tubes to this guy out on the great salt lake and they're harvesting brine shrimp eggs and i was like man i didn't really i'd sailed out there but i didn't know much about the industry at all and he says i think i think we could uh I think we could do a business in the wintertime because his business in the Grand Canyon's all in the summer. And so he says, this is what I'll do. Uh, I'll give you a truck, a boat, a motor, some boom, and you go figure out how to catch egg. And I, I didn't have anything on my plate. And I said, OK. So the next thing you know, we're out driving out to the Great Salt Lake. And we end up camping on Carrington Island, which was a true island back then. It was completely surrounded with water. And so we motored out there, set up uh, camp in a canvas wall tent, and we uh, had a stove. uh, And every morning we'd wake up and we'd climb up to the top of the island with a pair of binoculars and a compass and we'd look out over the lake and we could see the patches of egg way out there, miles away. And we'd take a compass reading on them after looking through the binos and we'd run back down to the boat. We'd drive out at a whopping... You'd get a heading? Yeah, you'd get a heading from the top of the peak and then come around and then we would drive out. I and mean, sometimes we'd go 10, 15 miles out at like... 10 miles an hour you know we had these stupid little boats and these little 20 horsepower the old black oars you know the mercs and so we'd go out there and we would we would run into so much egg we would fill the boat in an hour you know and it was like oh man now we got to turn around and go back and unload it you know so then we'd just go back to the first beach that we could find and and these each one of these bags is like a sandbag you know sandbags. They're heavy. They're hard to grab. These were cold. These were salty. Wet. They, they're wet. And we'd have to schlep them through the water. And then the, the other part I remember is that the boat was so heavy that we couldn't get it to shore. So we would have to carry loads in through the water, oh, wow. you know, with, with, hip, with hip waders. And to lighten the load. And then every time we got the boat a little lighter, we'd pull it in another 15 feet. And then we'd drag more bags, carry more bags until we could finally get the boat. As soon as we do that, we'd drive all the way back out there and grab another um, another 100 And bags. what kind of
1: boat were you in? Uh, it
0: was a J-Rig.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Just a two... Yeah, Two stout tubes. It was one of Dave, Dave's, uh, like, a cataract and for the listener,
1: that's like a 22-foot boat with these bridging
0: pontoons as the flotation yeah. and a frame
1: built in between them. Just so yeah,
0: that. with a 20-horsepower motor. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and we would sink it pretty quickly, you know. So then uh, that was the 87, 88. And then, and then we did collect quite a bit of egg, but we sold it raw, you know, just to another guy. And so I think the price was like a quarter of a pound wet. You know, it wasn't very much. So then we got, we got a couple checks, enough to kind of pique our interest and think about getting bigger. And then the next winter, 88, 89, Joe, I asked Joe if he wanted to get involved. And and he said, yeah, let's go do some more exploring. And so we go out <laughs> and we end up driving clear up on the West Desert through the... Uh, Hill Air Force Base range. To Lakeside. To Lakeside. Oh, and wow. We and, we, a J-rig and we launched there. a J-Rig over the there. <laughs> and went to Strong's Knob. And we went out, and it was just rough, and we just got blown back into Strong's Knob and decided to camp. So we spent the night on Strong's Knob and went out around the next morning, and these brine trippers uh, we ran into uh, in base. Guys, were, they were filling... Boxcars, railroad, because the railroad goes right by there, uh, headed, headed uh, west. And they were filling boxcar loads, shoveling, bag by bag. So, uh, I mean, and give Dave McKay
2: credit. He's, he's really savvy. Oh, yeah. And, he and had Jim own, Strong. And Jim Strong. they had, You need a railroad permit to drive alongside the railroad, right? And these guys had—Dave uh, had got a railroad permit. Yeah, yeah. So when we got—our effort got blown off with the boat— we were sitting in the truck looking at this permit going, well, we can go from this mile to, you know, we can drive 10 miles. You couldn't drive across the causeway, but if you were on either end of the causeway, you had a few miles that you could go, go out uh, next to the railroad. And so we just were putting down the railroad tracks and came across these guys that were shoveling eggs. And they, we were looking, and they had bags stacked everywhere. There must have been 20 guys out there shoveling eggs. And then you turn, and there's two boxcars that were sitting on a turnout for the train, and they were filling these boxcars with egg. And, you know, and for us, we, we were good with, you know, 30, 40 bags on a boat. Was and pretty you're saying, these guys, and these guys Yeah, so I can remember calling Dave McKay and saying, skip the boat, we need shovels. You know, and we wound up going out there right next to him and
0: shoveling well, they them. Well, they were really nice. We yeah, went we're, over we're, and we're, talked we're, to no them, and the guy <laughs> said... He says, oh, there's plenty of it. it. The egg was went on for hundreds and hundreds of yards. He says, just go down to the end over there, you know, away from us. And he says, you can shovel all day long, you know, as long as. So then we, we got a truck, yeah, your truck. I had, truck, a, yeah, I had a, a two-ton dump truck and
2: a long bed,
0: 18-foot bed. And we And we got a, a conveyor belt, mobile conveyor belts, because I don't know if you've ever walked up the side of the riprap on the side of the, uh, of the railroad, <clears> but it's <throat> gnarly. So we were on the beach down there, and we'd lay these conveyor belts on there and then throw the bag of egg on the conveyor belt and send it all the way up to the truck. And that was dangerous work. I mean, uh, lugging those things around, and it was wet and... Uh, yeah,
1: I'll bet that was gnarly.
0: And uh, yeah, it was not ocean. It was an eye opener because we
2: realized that when the wind blew, this egg would come into these shallow bays, and the wind would back off, and the egg would stay. Well, it would get three, four, five inches thick, and you could shovel a sixty pound bag in a minute. You know, so you, oh, wow. you, you could really harvest, you know, in great quantity. But again, you as we talked earlier, it was a little bit quality compromised. But the whole industry, I don't think, was really, uh, you know, keyed into the high quality. And so, how did you guys
1: meet each other?
0: Uh, we met at Dave McKay's warehouse, yeah. I think, Green River uh, Warehouse. Yeah. I was, uh, I was 17 and just got hired by McKay, and uh, Joe was working. For uh, Dave McKay, on and off, you weren't yeah. uh, uh, you weren't a company employee. No, I was on were... some
2: trips uh, with Dave, and uh, had done so for a year or two, and worked for a few other companies. But yeah, you were freelancing. Yeah, right. I was kind of yeah. freelancing at the time, and, and yeah, Tim I think was seventeen, and you know I was probably twenty one at the time, and and so I had worked for Dave and knew Dave McKay, but. Subsequently I had gone out on my own and, and started a landscape business and a landscape maintenance business. And so when Tim asked me uh, to help, it's it's a wintertime harvest and my landscaping was mostly in the summertime, spring, fall. Convenience seasonality. So it, it, yeah, yeah, it, yes. it, it coincided really well. And I had some equipment, tractors and trucks and trailers and stuff like that that assisted a lot of the, the harvesting in the initial Uh, Area. Uh, Anyway, that first year, that that's kind of where we harvested was along the railroad tracks, and and we didn't know what to do with the egg either. As far as uh, processing, we had no processing capability, so we were pinned down to selling our raw egg to somebody that did process. So that kind of put us in a position for Tim and I. The next year, we we wanted to expand into the processing because that's where the money was. You could sell your raw egg to somebody else that was a processor, but you you were not gonna do very yeah. well and you were in their control. So that's when Tim and I started to go our own way from Dave McKay. But it was a very uh, it was a three year mutual working together company arrangement where we were buy permits and boats and Dave would use his truck and he had his boats and we harvested together for two or three years mm-hmm. until we were both up and running enough that we could make a a clean split. split. So that that's can, that's neat. It was a congenial growth for you guys. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, it all started in you the Grand, cool Grand Canyon. Well, that's, that's <laughs> the whole point. You know, in, in reality, when it comes down to it, it was just another re- a reason to be on a boat. You know, we're, just, we're boating, <laughs> boating. Absolutely. In our blood. But, but it was worth it. Yeah, it was in the winter. You know, working out there really
1: was kind of the Wild West. Uh, Some of the big storms, you know, you'd get caught out there in a big storm with 30,000 pounds of egg on your boat. And uh, I remember coming in from Spring Bay with a full load. and I I don't know how many hours it took me to get to Antelope Island through a storm. And it was terrifying the whole way. I was thinking, am I going to have to break this load away, or am I going to sink? Or, Start. Oh, my God! <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think we all had uh, one or two or maybe even more experiences like that where we were, you know, the storms on the Great Salt Lake blew up so quick and so fast, and the waves would... Get so steep and so uh, condensed together that it was yeah, they were, they were, immediately uncomfortable. With that
1: shallow lake, it was really bizarre. And maybe the salt density of the water, but it's super destructive waves. I mean, they'd tear sheets of metal off your pontoons, they'd bend
2: stuff, separate your seams, separate, separate your, your
1: sternum. <laughs> uh, but. Short frequency, kind of weird short frequency waves that I've never seen anywhere since, anything like that. Especially when they were tall like that. It was like you could completely drive two miles an hour too fast and just destroy your boat.
0: Yeah, and the boats got bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, like Joe was saying earlier, a lot of the early boats were wood and metal and and inflatable pontoons, surplus stuff. And then everybody started going up to Seattle and and various places on the West Coast and building aluminum, quarter-inch aluminum boats that, you know, had 500 horsepower on it. I mean, you know, the boat that I was driving and Joe's scout boat, they would go 50 miles an hour. We would drive around at 50 miles an hour in the dark with 100 boats on the water and 15 airplanes above, just racing from patch to patch, you know, hoping you didn't hit somebody. And there were some harrowing times. I mean...
2: Oh, there's no question about that. When it became a horse race, it was truly uh, uh, by 8 o'clock in the morning. You have been running for three hours in different locations and trying to stand other companies off. And so, you know, but they had rules of engagement, you know, so to speak. The DWR had... Put rules in place. There was and sometimes honor you fees. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> some people followed rules better than others, and some you know people took advantage of it. Uh, but
1: let's talk a little bit about uh, you know we're pretty close to our time here, but let, let's talk a little bit about the natural health of the lake, or what are you guys seeing in regards to. Use of lake, what's going into the lake, what's being extracted from the lake. How are we looking as far as the lake health?
0: Well, that's a good question. Well, so the lake in the old days, in the 1800s, was a, was a giant cesspool. Everything went down all the creeks into the Jordan River and, or the, the Weber, the Ogden River, and it all ended up in the Great Salt Lake. It is a terminal lake, so there's no outlet there. So everything that goes in there stays in there. So as we got better as, an, as a society, we cleaned it up a little bit. But uh, I think what I see now is the biggest threat with the Great Salt Lake is uh, potential dams on the uh, Bear River uh, because the Bear River is the largest uh, supplier of fresh water to the Great Salt Lake. and Let's see the
1: Bear River comes in kind of near the...
0: Trestle, it comes herb. through Ogden, yeah, by the yep, kind of by the, through the bird refuge, yeah. Where it comes down on the. the and so people west. want to dam the 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 Bear River. If the Bear is, uh, if they actually get dams going there, and it happens, it's going to be the death of the Great Salt Lake. I think. Right now, I think it's in pretty good health. There's still a lot of birds that use it. So. Yeah, it's an inland flyway for a
2: lot of birds going yeah, from and, Alaska and, and that's to another, South America, and I think that still happens. Those birds, will, uh, some of them will eat the brine shrimp and molt fe- feathers and roost on the lake till they get flying feathers and then go south. So uh, that, that's a big concern, I guess, for uh, you know the bird people, and I'm not sure that it really has impacted the population of brine shrimp, but the lake is... As low as it's been in a long time, maybe in our lifetime. So that has, uh, that condenses We're the whole the scenario. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very salty. and But in reality, there's nothing else that lives out there other than Brian shrimp, I mean, in the water itself. And then there's a little bug called a carixid that lives kind of around the springs or around of. the shores, and, and they'll eat the. the Is, that's really, kind of like a black fly or a. Yeah, it's, a, it's yeah, like, like a little water boatman, a little water, water boatman. Yeah. All those guys on yeah. top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So, but after that, there's really no predators in the lake, and that's why there's uh, such a big resource there. Uh, you know, the, you can collect the eggs uh, continually. And, and you feel like there's equilibrium as uh, in regards to what they're allowing to harvest. The DWR had their formula. They'd take a, they had <coughs> 17 sites on the lake that they used to study, and they would dip a liter of water and, and count the, the noplii or the cis and determine what the density in the water column was of the Brian shrimp egg or the, the, the Brian shrimp. and they would stop the harvest if there was, I think, less than 25 eggs per liter of water. I think that's what it was, uh, back in the day, and then they would shut it down once it got to that point. But it's, it's you know, a lot of that depends on where you take the sample from. They have seventeen different sites, you know, and they're studying it all the time. And I think they're control. I
0: think they're trying to control it though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they will shut it down. I mean, we used to have a when we first started. It was a five month season, and then it got shut down to four months, and. And And then there were actually some closures. There there were some where we we only fished 25 days or something, and they shut the whole season off. So they will shut it down if they think it's going to hurt the lake or hurt the population of brine shrimp.
1: No, fascinating stuff. Um, The the Great Salt Lake adventure there. Uh, Give me one story you were both there as far as Great Salt Lake survival. (laughs) Just one
0: uh survival huh
1: like I'll, I'll show you a quick one that i was involved with we were up on the great north end we were living like dogs on the boom boat sleeping out there like you guys were in closed boats and st- maybe we're staying up there but we were out there for 10 days straight i remember and uh Mark Jensen, the guy I worked for, and another guy got caught way away from where we were harboring up behind one of those little islands up there, getting out of the weather, and the weather was coming in tremendously hot. And by the time they got in, uh, Mark was so traumatized, and I go, golly, he's really kind of worked up here. And I looked up at him, and he was caked with that. 25, 26 percent salt water had been hitting him in the face and beating him around the head and shoulders. And the the survival suit was completely encrusted. And it was cold. You know, The if it was fresh water, it was freezing and stuff like that. But it was like living truly like a dog up there. And we were out there for 10 days just out Living on the decks of the boats and stuff.
2: Yeah. I think the whole industry matured into that scenario. I know when we were in the when we first started in the beginning, we'd watch the weather, we'd leave the, the lake a day before a storm came. Because we were gonna catch more than we could all well, during the winter and so we would not be out there in bad weather and then once, you know, the industry became so competitive and you would be out there until the storm blew you off. Mm-hmm. You know the weather would yeah, you no off, and that, that you and that's when you would get in trouble. You'd risk it. You know, it. Uh, so I can remember a time that we were up in the north end and that in the bay by Magcor, and weather was coming, and we were pulling our gear, but we had load, we had some egg on board, and we were coming in. The waves got so big uh, that one of our 40 foot boats buried in a wave and you've got all that float, a thousand feet of floating boom on the deck boat and it just swept it right off the boat. Right. Oh, wow. And so we got this mayday call uh, from the boat, the boom driver and he said, come out, come out here. we got to get this boom. I said, no, no, (laughs) leave it. (laughs) Just leave it, it. anchor it. No, just don't even touch it. We'll find it with a plane just yeah. get your ass in here and we were trying to get to the harbor we oh had, the whole wow fleet was out and we were trying to get to the harbor and trying to get everybody in yeah safe. And, and we did we eventually got everybody in safe but uh other boats were not so lucky there was a bunch of boats that were marooned on shore and mm-hmm. there was a couple uh competitors that came to our harbor for safety purposes we just you know brought them in and and moored them up and it was really, it scattered everybody off that lake that particular time. But we were okay because we, we had a you know a harbor close. We, it was a wild ride. <laughs> Reality, I mean, when you would ask anybody um, about the Salt Lake, or, or you would tell them they were working out there, the first thing out of their mouth was, oh, that's, they shoot each other out there. You know, because it was in- It, it was rough and tumble. Well, in an OSI camp, these two drunks got in a fight, and the guy that tried to break it up got killed. Right, you know. <laughs> so, and, that that, into, and, and and that was know. in the newspaper, right? And and so that was what people knew about brine shrimp, was that they were out there killing each other on the Great Salt Lake to get bryant shrimp eggs. And it's not gold. many people, not many people in Salt Lake. When you talk to them, knew anything about the lake. Even so people I mean, in Salt Lake, a yeah. Lot, yeah. And we would go all around the world to these world aquaculture shows and people knew all about the Great Salt Lake.
1: Well, with that, I should thank you guys for taking the time. Um, I'm looking forward to getting back here uh, this winter and going, do, making some more stories in regards to going skiing. Good. But last night, and you guys might have had a nip or two, hell, I'm not really sure if I remember, but uh, you promised you'd come down Flagstaff go skiing with me.
0: That's a promise, and it was a pleasure speaking with you guys.
1: Well, there's a bunch of stuff we know now about the Great Salt Lake and brine shrimping. And I don't even think we've scratched the surface or the the surface of the lake as far as some of that storytelling that they could go on with. Uh, So we thank those guys. That, That was fascinating. I hope you guys join us for the next round and stay right side up. Thanks for being here.
0: Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Steve Carruthers in support of the Whale Foundation. The Whale Foundation provides a network of support services to promote the well-being of the Grand Canyon River guiding community. For more information, please visit whalefoundation.org. And thank you, Steve, for supporting Big Adventures.